This is Getting to Know Your Bible, a program dedicated to the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's Billy Lambert. And today we're going to be studying a topic entitled Christ's Love for the Church. And I want to read two passages to you to begin our study. And the first passage is in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, and verse number 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now the second passage is in Ephesians 5 and verse 25. And you husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now the first passage that I read from Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that we should have the mind of Christ. We should have the spirit of Christ, the, the attitude of Christ, the disposition of Jesus Christ. The second passage tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We will never have the mind of Christ until we learn to love the church as Jesus loved the church. Now that we might understand and have a greater appreciation of what Paul meant when he said Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, let your mind go back to the time that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. In your mind, try to picture Jesus praying, prostrate on the ground, praying so fervently that, that the perspiration appeared as drops of blood on his brow. And now we hear the trampling of feet as an angry mob invades the garden of prayer. Jesus is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, by one of his inner circle. And then Jesus is taken by that mob all night long from one mock trial to another. And finally he comes back into the court of Pilate. Pilate knew Jesus was an innocent man. But Pilate was a moral coward. He feared the people. And Pilate had Jesus scourged. In my mind, I cannot begin to conceive how cruel a scourging like that would be. I want you to try to imagine Jesus with his arms maybe fastened around him in some kind of a stock. And because of the way they have fastened him, the skin on his back is as tight as the skin on a drum. 
And then there stands a soldier with Pilate's scourge in his hand. A scourge or whip that has embedded the ends of it, bits of metal, perhaps bits of stone. And that soldier is about to bring that scourge down on the back of the only man who ever lived without sinning. He's about to bring that scourge down upon the back of the man who is the prince of peace and the priest of the Most High God. He's about to bring that scourge down on the back of the man who's called Wonderful, Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Do you hear something like cords breaking? Why that's the tearing and the searing of the flesh of the Son of God. As Pilate's scourge bites in. Do you hear something like water dripping from the eaves of a house after a spring rain? That's the dropping of the blood of the Son of God to the floor below. After that scourging that normally would leave a victim almost dead, Jesus is made to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem. Even today, they call it the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. And Jesus fell beneath the weight of that cross. In all probability, he was carrying the crossbar and, or the patibulum. And after he fell beneath the weight of that crossbar, that cross, a man by the name of Simon was compelled to carry the cross to Execution Hill. And when they got out to Golgotha, the soldiers took the Son of God and they stretched his arms out on that standard and they put nails, spikes almost as big as railroad spikes and drove them into his flesh. And then they lifted that patibulum up on the stipes or the upright bar. And they fastened the two together. And his feet were then nailed to the cross. There the Son of God came to rest upon that old cross. With the weight, with the sins, and with the burden of mankind upon him. It was while he was hanging on that cross that Jesus uttered seven sayings. And one of those sayings was, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which being interpreted means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here he was, the Son of God. He was dying on that cross. The Son of God was dying. All because 
He loved the church and gave himself for it. Have you ever wondered why Jesus loved the church so much? Are, are there any reasons that we could give as to why Jesus loved it so much? I think one of the reasons he loved it so much is he knew it was in the eternal plan of God. There had never been a time that God did not have the church in mind. In the third chapter of Ephesians, verses 10 and 11, there the apostle wrote to the intent now that under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. We talk about God being eternal. We, we go to passages like over in Psalms 90 verses 1 and 2 where it is said that God's from everlasting to everlasting. And then we go to passages like Micah 5 and 2 where it speaks of Jesus and his goings forth have been from of old that Jesus has always been, that he's everlasting. And then in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 we're told that the Holy Spirit is the eternal spirit. So why would it be strange to find out that the church was in the eternal plan of God? Meaning there had never been a time that God did not have it in mind. You know some people talk about the church like this. They say, well, you know, because Jesus was rejected by his own people and by the Jewish people, the kingdom was postponed. And in, in the place of the kingdom, the church was established as sort of an emergency measure on the part of God. Well, there's so many things wrong with that that time would not permit me to deal with them at this point. But suffice it to say, there is no distinction to be made between the kingdom and the church. The term kingdom suggests the governmental feature of God's folk. The ter term church suggests the relationship that we have to the world. We've been called out of the world. We're the called out ones. But they're one and the same to suggest that God postponed the church, the kingdom and established the church in its place is to reflect upon the wisdom of God. Because God had in his mind, in his eternal purpose, the church from, all, from time past, all ages, you see, there has been no postponement of it. And so it's no wonder Jesus loved the church so much when we learn it was in the plan of God for, in, in eternity. It's no wonder to, to me that Jesus loved the church so much. Not, not when you find out he's ahead of it. And Jesus is the only head there is. The head of the church is not in Salt Lake City. The head of the church is not in Nashville, Tennessee or Cleveland, Tennessee. The head of the church is not in Rome, Italy. Jesus is the head of the church and Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, that put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Jesus is the head over all things to the church. If there's something you want to know about the church, learn it from Jesus, because Jesus is the one who is the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Christ is the head of the church. It's no wonder he loved it. One head, one body. It's no wonder Jesus loved the church so much, not when we learn that folk who are saved, people that are saved, compose the church. The church is not our Savior. Let's make that plain. The church is not our Savior. The church is not a building that we meet in. The church is composed of people, but not just any people. The church is called by people who have obeyed the gospel and been added to the church by the Lord. Listen to Acts chapter 2 and then verse number 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added unto the church daily, such as should be saved. Those that were saved were added to the number, through to the church. And, and today, when a person obeys the gospel by believing on Christ, repenting of his or her sins, confessing faith in Christ by being baptized into Christ, no one's going to vote you into the church. Now, some churches do that. They'll, they'll vote you in and they give you the right hand of fellowship, they call it. But you see, your being a member of the church is not our business. That's God's business. God will add you to the church when you've obeyed the gospel and have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. To put it another way, the church is composed of all that blood-washed group of people who have had their sins and the stain of sin removed from their lives by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of the body. He is the head of the church, Ephesians 5 and verse 23. The church is not our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. The church is composed of people who are saved. The saved make up the church. So that's why Jesus loved it so. And Jesus Christ loved the church and was willing to give himself for it. You, you know, I wish that I could believe that all people everywhere love the church like Jesus loved it. I really do. But, but I guess I'm too old and been preaching too long for me to, to, to accept that. Because I'm aware of the fact that all people don't love the church like Jesus loved it. And there may be many reasons for that. And one reason may be that they've never been taught. But, but another reason I think that people do not love the church is because they have confused the church with all of the ecclesiastical organizations 
and institutions built by man that call themselves the church. What is the church? What is the origin of the church? You know, I believe in simplicity. And those that hear me preach on a regular basis might describe my sermons as very simple sermons. And I'm not, a, I'm not the least bit uh, uh, upset over that designation. I think preaching ought to be simple. Now, let's think about the church. How are we going to learn about the church? We read about the church as a matter of history. It's just a history that we read about. There are things that we learn in life, and they're matters of history. I'm aware that some people are trying to destroy some of our history in America. But there are some things you can't destroy. And you, For example, I, I believe in that George Washington was the first president of our country. And there's just too much, too much written history about George Washington for me to deny that. It's a matter of record. And that there is a church described in the Bible is a matter of historical record. We read about it in prophecy. For example, in Daniel, the second chapter in verse 44, we read about the kingdom or the church and the days of these kingdoms uh, and days of these kings. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? And it shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. It shall stand forever. In Daniel chapter 2, there are four great world empires that are contemplated. First of all, there is the Babylonian Empire. Second, there is the Medo-Persian Empire. Third, there is the Grecian Empire. And fourth, there is the Roman Empire that is contemplated. And studying all of that history is such an interesting, enriching study. Now, the fourth great world empire was the Roman Empire. And Daniel said it would be in the days of those kings that the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And it was, interestingly enough, in the days of those Roman kings that John the Baptist came out of the wilderness of Judea preaching, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now when he said it's at hand, he meant it's nearby, it's coming. It's not here now, but it is coming in the future. Then in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, there the Bible says that Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming. That was said in the days of those Roman kings that are mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. And then in Matthew, the 16th chapter, and verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build, that's future tense, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven 
and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in, in heaven. So Peter, Peter uh, on this occasion, uh, it was uh, said, uh, Jesus said to Peter, I will build a church. No. I will build a bunch of churches. No. Jesus said, I will build my church. Church as of one, not churches as of many. Then Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's possession, isn't it? The church belongs to him because Jesus said, I will build my church. And then Jesus said, I'm going to give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was talking about the same when he talked about the church and he talked about the kingdom. And then in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus there said, Verily, verily, there are some of you standing here which shall not taste of death. Till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now notice Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, the kingdom. And Mark 9 and 1, he said, That's go the kingdom will come with power. Well, where or when would that power come? Well, in Luke 24 and verse 49, Jesus said to the disciples, Tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. The power would come in the city of Jerusalem. Then in Acts, the first chapter and verse number 8, Jesus said to the disciples, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. Now let's think about these passages. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, our kingdom. It's going to come with power. The power will come in the city of Jerusalem. And the power will come when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Did the Holy Spirit ever come upon those apostles? Well, now we turn to the second chapter of Acts. This is all historical record. Keep, on, keep that in mind. We can say I don't believe it, but it's just a matter of history. All of this is historical record. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all of the house where they were sitting. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. This was the day of Pentecost. What's happening on the day of Pentecost? On this day, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I know people talk about tongue speaking today, and, and uh, uh, it's unintelligible what they say. Well, what about the tongues on this occasion? If you'll notice in verse 6, they were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. And, and they said one to another, Behold, are not all of these which speak Galileans? And notice the question they asked. In verse 8, how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? They heard them speak in their languages. I submit to you that God endowed those apostles with the power to speak languages they had not previously known. This was not some un, un, mis, uh, gibberish that, that you couldn't understand. It was a known language. They were born in that language. And that is, they were born where certain dialects and languages were prevalent. I was born in the English language. 
But I wasn't born speaking. But I was born where English was the predominant language. And so they were born in those tongues. And when the apostles were able to speak to these people from all the various places around the world, they could speak to them in their languages because God gave them that ability. That's what tongue speaking was all about on the day of Pentecost. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. Peter told them to repent and be baptized. What, why did he tell them, them that? Because they had asked, What shall we do? Well, what is it that he told them they needed to do? They needed to repent. And if there's ever been a group of people since the beginning of the world need to repent, surely it's the people who crucified him. But before we get a little smug about that, let's realize our sins put him up there as well. He told him to repent and be baptized. I wonder if any of them ever did. Verse 41. Then, this is the very same day, they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day, the day of Pentecost, there were added to them about 3,000 souls. The day of Pentecost always fell on the first day of the week according to Jewish law. And it was on the first day of the week that Peter preached the first recorded gospel sermon under the Worldwide Commission. And if we go back to the Bible and just take it as a history, we will learn that it was on this occasion in Acts chapter 2 that Peter preached these people about Jesus about his life, his death, his resurrection, and about the fact that we need Jesus in our lives and that we need to be asking today, what shall we do? What shall we do? And the answer is the same today as it was on the day of Pentecost, isn't it? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Isn't that so simple? I hope you've been blessed by the lesson today, and, and I hope to see you again soon. And, and let us bow for a brief word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you, God, for all those precious souls that are watching right now. Bless us all as your children, God, and help us, Lord, to always love the church like Jesus loved the church in his name. And amen. We want to help you as much as possible in your search for a personal relationship with God. You can now easily access our free Bible correspondence course online at gettingtoknowyourbible.com. If there's any way we can help you grow closer to God, please email us at gettingtoknowyourbible at yahoo.com or call us anytime at 1-877-711-5214. Getting to Know Your Bible has been presented by Churches of Christ. If you have a question about the church, or if you would like the location of a Church of Christ near you, or to receive the free Bible course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama 36580 
or call 1-877-711-5214. Join us next time for Getting to Know Your Bible.